This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told. And you are among friends. Before we get started, and very excited about tonight, uh, we have American film and television director, screenwriter, television producer Jeremy Kagan uh, is standing by. He's been with us before uh, to talk about a a near-death experience. We'll touch on that as well. Uh, But we're also going to talk about his new feature film starring Noah Wiley. It's called Shot. And uh, it's, well, the log line is very provocative. One bullet, three lives, everyone pays. We'll talk about that. But Jeremy also uh, was the man who directed uh, a very famous uh, film uh, for those of us in the, uh, who dabble in the, uh, uh, the UFO community or the, the UFO uh, area, and that is Roswell, The UFO Conspiracy. And um, that, that movie came out about almost 25 years ago, I think, 1994. Okay, 23 years. We'll touch on that uh, as well. But I also want to talk to Jeremy because growing up, my all-time favorite a television show was Columbo. And as a very young man, uh, Jeremy actually directed an episode of Columbo and got to know Peter Falk on another project. We'll talk about that. Just a programming note, Ian uh, Robertson, my fine rockabilly friend, uh, is here, of course, behind the glass. Albert Vinzel, my story producer, and Ryan White, our feature producer, they're off tonight taking a, a much-deserved rest. We'll be back actually in a couple weeks, and then we'll resume our, uh, our live YouTube stream. So there's no live YouTube stream tonight uh, or next week, but the following week we'll be back uh, with, of course, our weekly remote viewing experiment, what's in the box, and, uh, and all of that. Okay. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Jeremy Kagan is uh, an American film television director, screenwriter, story, um, uh, television producer. 
His uh, feature film credits include the box office hit Heroes, uh, The Big Fix. I remember that uh, with Richard Dreyfuss, another favorite of mine. And, of course, The Journey of Nadi Nadi Gan. Who could forget that? Uh, Back in 1985, that was the first American movie ever to win the gold prize at the Moscow International uh, Film Festival. Um, As I say, he's also been a prolific television director starting in 1972 at the age of 26 My gosh, 26, I was still wetting the bed. Uh, He directed The Most Crucial Game, starring Peter Falk, Robert Culp, Valerie Harper, Dean Stockwell, among others. And then, as I said, an episode in the second Columbo season. Uh, He also won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series for Chicago Hope. Uh, That was the episode Leave of Absence. And uh, he's also um, directed uh, episodes of The West Wing, uh, Picket Fences, Boomtown, and more. I, I could go on and on. What a resume. What a career. Jeremy Kagan, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm so glad to be here right now. Well, let's uh, so much to talk about, but let's dive right in and talk about the, the latest project, uh, Shot, sure. and yep. um, uh, starring Noah Wiley. Um, who else is in this? Uh, Sharon Leal, who's well-known for Dream Girls. Uh, she's in a new television show right now. Um, and a new young boy named uh, George Lindbergh Jr., uh, who actually has a part in Spider-Man and is also now the star of another Marvel comic that's being shot at this very moment. Um, so those are our three leads. And we have some actually quite well-known actors from lots of movies that we've all seen, like uh, Xander Berkeley who's been in literally hundreds of movies that we've loved, and Elaine Hendricks. Um, so Malcolm, Jamal, Malcolm Jamal Malcolm Warrior. Jamal. Yeah, Malcolm Absolutely. Jamal. Yeah. Lots of people sort of joined in because the movie really deals with one of the subjects that I think we're all troubled by, um, and that sometimes it puts us on opposite sides of the fence, which unfortunately is unnecessary. And that what we're troubled by is the epidemic of gun violence in our society. I mean, as we're talking within this hour, so many people actually will be shot, some of them killed, and some of them even children every seven minutes. We're talking about 90 people shot every single day and killed and almost 300 every single day going to hospitals. And this, compared to any other civilized nation across the world, we are exponentially so much more violent with our guns and homicides and suicides. And it's just so troubling for all of us. And even those of us who may be gun owners, and even, even those who are members of the National Rifle Association, NRA, also are extremely troubled by this. And we've reached a point in which um, I think we all need to get together and say, okay, look, we're not going to take guns away from anybody. That's not what this is about. What it is about is those people who have guns should be people who are responsible. Those who are people who aren't shouldn't have access to guns. Guns shouldn't be sold illegally. Guns can even be made more safe. But all that sort of was a stimulus to make this movie. And what I realized was, and I've shot lots of guns, and particularly lots of guns in movies. Uh, the MEI one, the opening sequence, a character gets shot. The very first television show I ever did called Nichols with uh, James Garner opened up with somebody getting shot. But the thing is that in all these stories, we never stay with the experience of the person who gets shot. Right. And I realize we always cut away from it in movies. You know, somebody gets shot, and maybe they'll go to the hospital, and they'll cut to the vaccine or something else, but you won't stay with them. And I sort of felt, you know, I need to know what that's like. 
So I called some of my colleagues. I'm a professor at the University of Southern California, and I spent time in emergency rooms and spent time with people who got shot. And it was there from the moment they got there. So oftentimes they won't went in any operation. And I realized this is an incredible, intense experience. It's like a roller coaster ride with lots of drama every second. And I said, you know, maybe if we made a movie in which we meet some people we care about really early on and then... In this case, accidentally, one of them gets shot. And then we stayed with the entire experience for what's known in the medical profession as the golden hour. Meaning if you survive that hour, you might live. Now, how you live is another question. The golden hour. So I thought, oh, the I golden hour. So I thought, what if we just did that? What if we gave this visceral roller coaster ride from the minute our character gets shot to never leave them? stay, in this case, it's a estranged husband and wife, to just stay with them, waiting while he's down on the ground on the street for six minutes because it takes a while for ambulance and police to get to you, even in, in our society where they get fairly fast. And then that terminal ride in the ambulance where you're in pain and in fear and anguish and confusion and you don't know what's going to happen, but we never cut away. We stay with them. And when they arrive in the hospital, we stay with them for the next 40 minutes. But I also wanted to tell the story of the shooter. And so in a multiple screen way, we also tell at the same time, in real time, what happens to the shooter. In this case, it's a 16-year-old kid who's being bullied, who gets a gun from the cousin uh, in order to sort of, quote, protect himself. And as he's just looking at how the thing works, it goes off. And now he's been inadvertently a criminal and doesn't want to get caught. And so we tell his story as well. And the, the log line is um, one bullet, three lives, uh, everyone yep. pays. So you mentioned, obviously, the, the shooting victim. Uh, right. you and, his, and, his, and his wife. So the, the wife is, being, is, the, is the third Yes. Uh, the third but, you know, story. it's interesting. We could, you know, we, we could actually, we, we, we title that and actually say, say, you know, one bullet, many lives. Because if you think about it, the ripple effect of one bullet, I mean, yes, immediately in these three lives, but think about the families of everybody. In this case, the family and the mother and brother of the kid who was the shooter. You know, all the people that are in the, the emergency medical teams that arrive in the ambulance, the police, all the people who are in the hospitals, and how this affects each one of their lives as they deal with people who are getting shot. Right. And so it's this ripple effect, and, and it's, you know, it affects you and me. Here's the weird part about it. You know, every one of us pays, and, and by the way, literally pays. It costs around $20,000 a day when a gunshot wound victim arrives in a hospital, and many of these people don't have that money. And so you and I are paying for it in terms of just the way we support our society and in terms of taxes. And it's literally billions of dollars a year are spent on gunshot wound victims. We're all paying for it, even if we don't even know anybody. Jeremy Kagan is with us, uh, film director. The, the new, his new film is called Shot, uh, starring Noah Wiley, Sharon Leal, uh, Lane Hendricks. Uh, we mentioned uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner, uh, many others. And when is this uh, in, in theaters, Jeremy? It opens in New York City um, and in Los Angeles on September 22nd. And then in the next weeks, it'll open up in a number of cities, cities actually that are dealing with these issues, like Chicago and New Orleans, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Philadelphia, um, Detroit. Um, because we, I'm hoping that the movie generates more conversation. Actually, you know what the truth is, Richard? 
you know, I've been working on this movie for, for seven years. We started actually making it around two years ago. And about five weeks ago, as we've been going through the process of you know, beginning to spread the word about the film, and those of you in the audience know about independent films and how difficult it is for them to even get any attention. Oh, yes. But I realized what I wanted that this film to do, Richard. I like this movie, and I know this is a big ambition. I like this movie to save a life. If one person sees this movie and decides not to use a gun on himself, on a family member, on a friend, on a stranger, whatever, just decides for some reason, you know, this is pretty horrific, I, I, I don't want to do this, then I will know this movie has actually done a good deed. I pray that happens too, Jeremy. Uh, that would be quite a legacy. Uh, the thing is, as with, with all noble acts, you'll never know, probably, whether that happens. Exactly. Exactly. There's an old saying from the tradition I come with, which is if you save one soul, that is one body, it's as if you've saved a complete world. And I hope that, that the movie is part of that conversation so that we all, and as I said, I'm not talking about giving guns back. I'm not talking about people should be fearful that guns being taken away. Look, there's so many guns in this country, almost 300 million of them. Well, people are not going to take away people's guns, and that's not the issue. We just want to be more responsible about who gets them and how they're used. Right. We're heading into a break, Jeremy, but I wanted to ask you, we'll start this conversation now, continue it after the break. You know, on a, on a Sunday morning, there, um, one of the things that my kids and I enjoy doing is uh, before my wife and I watch the Sunday news programs, the magazine shows, Sunday morning and so forth, on one of the channels, the old series The Rifleman comes on with Chuck Connors. Mm -hmm. And my mm -hmm. kids, they're kind of, you know, we've kind of raised them for an appreciation of vintage things, and they love old TV shows. So, And we enjoy The Rifleman. It has a wonderful moral and values in the story, but, of course, you know, guns obviously play a central role. But, you know, when, when people are shot in that, that series, you don't see blood. So I'm, yep. I'm just wondering, I mean, I'm, you must have taken a, a great deal of, of, of time and... Uh, thought into thinking about how you are you're going to portray this single blood this single um, bullet wound this single gunshot because obviously you you want to show it in how you know ugly and damaging and all of these things how did you approach that well actually I spoke to the people who had been shot I spoke to a lot of people who were um, medical sort of specialists and what it's like and you know it depends on the individual I mean, somebody can get shot in the foot and, 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 and go down in absolute pain and agony because of the, 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 the adrenaline system of, of dealing with shock turns off everything, and so you just fall and, and suddenly you're, you're numb. Other people can be shot repeatedly and, in fact, not even really notice it because of their particular you know, physical and chemical makeup. What I was interested particularly, though, was the issue of a small bullet, a 9-millimeter bullet, is very, very small. And unlike, you know, in fact, the opening of this movie, there's a sequence that our hero happens to work as a sound professional, and he works on doing sound effects in movies. Ah. And he's adding sound effects into one of these movies with lots of blood and then lots of gunshots. And when he gets shot, the bullet, as often as true, is really small. Not that much blood. But what happens to a bullet when it enters a body... If it hits something, it can shatter right. and can do incredible damage that you wouldn't visually see. So, you know, the, it, it, the issue of this thing traveling so fast out of that muzzle and making a small little hole 
but that little hole can mean the, your life is, in fact, over or changed forever. Now, I, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, just very quickly, do, do you take us in, do, do the cameras take us inside to show the trajectory of the bullet once it enters the body? No, no, we don't. What we do is something else, though. We, we decided to, you know, when we're looking at movies and television shows, usually we have what's called an, an objective camera. It means there's a camera there watching stuff. And that's the way we see most shows. And every now and then we'll see a close-up of somebody and we'll see what that somebody sees. Who knows the point of view? i got to jump in here, Jeremy. I apologize. Yeah, we'll, we'll take a time out, come back. Jeremy Kagan sure. is with us. Director, screenwriter, producer, and the new movie, Shot. One bullet, three lives, everyone pays. Back with more. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Do you want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. My guest is Jeremy Kagan, American film director, producer, screenwriter. Uh, We're talking about his uh, latest film. It's called Shot. One Bullet, Three Lives, Everyone Pays, uh, starring Nola Wiley. And uh, earlier I was asking about how you approach uh, the actual uh, sequence in which the individual, uh, Noah Wiley's character, is, is shot. Um, and um, anyway, let's, I'm, I'm not sure if we finished that, uh, that off or not. You, want, you were talking about how well, you approach just, this, yeah. Yeah, what we, what we wanted to do, because we wanted you, me, the viewer, to actually go through the vicarious experience so that it was like, what if this happened to us? So instead of watching it with an objective camera, the minute our character gets shot, which is in the first five minutes of the movie, we change point of view, and all we get to see from then on for the next hour is we see what they see, but we never have this sort of objective camera. We only see what they see, so it's as if we were having this happen to us, like in like in a virtual reality right, experience. Right, That's right. what you're seeing. Um, now we see a multiple screen because we also see what's happening to the young seventeen-year-old kid who gets who was the shooter. But from the point of view of the person who gets shot, we only see what he sees, and also in this case, also what his wife sees. Um, at the end of the hour. We fade out and we come back five months later to see where these characters are and see how their lives have changed and see what happens when, they, in fact, we experience each other. Jerry, how does, how do you, what are your feelings on, you know, you're making a movie in Hollywood or trying to, as an independent producer, uh, trying to address the gun culture. Uh, and you're surrounded, obviously, by, you know, production houses that are churning out movies that are all about, you know, almost celebrating, or not celebrating necessarily in every case, but certainly, um, you know, in a way celebrating the gun culture and, and romanticizing gun culture. How, do, how does that make you feel? Well, I have a feeling that it was probably one of the motivations for me wanting to make this movie, because I've been one of those people over the years, you know, having guns in movies and getting people shot, as I said, you know, I've done this as well. 
Um, and there's a part of me that, as I, I you know, I, I was literally thinking about this a little earlier today. You remember the Virginia Tech experience back in 2007? Yes, that, that, yes. That young man who was mentally um, um, disturbed was able to get a gun, which he wouldn't have gotten a gun if we'd had stronger um, background checks, um, and killed all those people, wounded them. And I was in that uh, city. I was just about 10 miles away from the university at the time working on another project. I think it really sort of hit me. And I'm feeling it was, and I just realized this just just in the last hours, the kind of motivation of, okay, I've been part of Hollywood. Whoops, we're losing you, Jeremy. Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay. I, I, I've been part of Hollywood. I've, you know, won an Emmy um, where someone got shot. And I, I, I kind of said, I need to deal with this myself. We need, as storytellers in Hollywood, to take responsibility for potentially keeping the myth of the gun as the final good solution uh, alive. We, so I wanted to make something that, uh, you know, took on that subject, took on Hollywood as well. And by the way, it's taken this long to get made because Hollywood didn't want to make this. Right, right. It must have been a battle. Um, how much of your motivation, your decision to make this movie uh, sprang out of your near-death experience? I, I think the one part of the movie definitely sprang out of that. Um, and that is that I realized when I was in the sort of middle of this through-death, near-death experience, that I was, although I didn't exist anymore, but my consciousness exists, connected to everybody. And that sense of the fact that we're all sort of one unit, even though we're in our own individual personalities and experiences, that sense of being totally connected to everything means that when there's harm done to someone, that harm in a way is being done to you or to me. And I sensed that during that experience. And I also sensed that we're in a kind of school here. When I was a kid, I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a poster. And it was a poster of the cosmos. Yes. And there was an arrow that pointed to one star. And then an arrow way down at the bottom of the poster pointing into another. And then there was a text, the one pointing to the one star, and it said, you are here. <laughs> and then yes. to the one down at the bottom, it said, and all the good stuff is here. And here we are on this planet, this incredibly beautiful planet. And I feel like we're in a school. We're sort of like on a... And, and, and a lot of us, including me, get sent back remedial education. Because we don't get it. We don't get that we're all connected. We don't get that we're responsible for the beauty of this planet and the health of the planet. We get into, what can I get for myself? Right. And listen, when you go through your death, guess what? You don't get to get anything for yourself. It's all gone. When I was going through my near-death experience, the first things that I was realizing was, first of all, my body was gone. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear. I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't breathe. I was no longer in a body. 
We should explain, uh, Jeremy, that this happened. You you had attended a, a sweat lodge ceremony. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, the day before my birthday, and um, I had been doing um, this work. It's kind of men's group work at the time. Well, this was actually a co-ed sweat lodge, um, and it's Native American work. Although sweat lodges are part of cultures all around the world and have been for thousands of years. I don't particularly like them, by the way, because I don't like to be that hot. No, I'm the but, same with you. I, I don't like saunas. No. Oh, boy, not me either, boy. But, but there's something about it when you do it. One of the things is because you, you speak in the darkness. And when you're that hot and you're that sweaty and you're that uncomfortable, it's really difficult to lie. <laughs> you, you just, you know, i got to tell you the truth of what's going on. So when you're saying prayers for yourself, you're saying what you really want, even if it's yourself. They said prayers for others, what you really want from them. But what would happen in my case was that um, it was very cold outside. It was the wintertime in the, in the Malibu Mountains. And, of course, the, hot, the, the sweat lodge is incredibly hot. And I, if, in a medical terms, uh, had a, an attack of, if you will, hypothermia. And you can die from that. Uh, you know, I, I have a feeling that it was something that lasted a very short time, but in my experience, it lasted forever. Uh, but the gain of the insight about you lose everything, there's nothing you hold on to. You know, not only was all my body functions gone, but I, I thought at first, oh, they're going to take me to a hospital, but I can't see, I can't hear, and I can't feel anything, and that's not changing. So. I'll be in this hospital, and you know my relatives, my 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 child, my my they will, and I won't be able to see them or communicate. They won't be able to communicate. All my relationships are gone, mm-hmm. and then that was the precursor to the realization and the fact that I actually was dying. But my point is that all the stuff that we want for ourselves, I want this for me. In the end, you're not going to have any of it. But what you will have, and this was the great gift of this experience, you will still be conscious. That doesn't end. And that consciousness is universal. It's what connects all of us. We're all a piece of that consciousness. And when you're in that space, it is the most blissful, supremely um, inspirational, uh, awesome and serene and perfect and you realize that's who we really are and when when the darkness opened up and you could see while you were still having this experience what what did you see my journey took me in a classic way um, through um, you know, I, had, I didn't know anything about this, but of course, subsequent experience, I read, met people, and you know, got associated with lots of people who were in their deficit associations, etc. Um, my experience led me um, on a classic sort of journey, in which almost it's like it was like a ride, and I, I'm on it, and it's taking me wherever it's taking me. But I'm in an absolute, total acceptance even a blissful ease with whatever's been happening. And I did see beings to my left and right as I was sort of moving on this cloud uh, sort of ride, um, and they were, I think, images of past relatives. I didn't have what some people have, which were verbal communications. I didn't get that, but there was sort of a visual communication, like an acknowledgement. And then there was this, this opening 
to what I would say is a star field, as if you know um, my essence was going to go back to stardust from which we all come. But there was then this very unique experience in which, for many people, it's known as the past life. But in this case, it was not my past life alone. It was like the past life of the entire human existence, that everything that any human being had done, had created, had been, all of this was suddenly being presented to me as if I was part of creation itself. And I was experiencing it all instantaneously, particularly that of creation of us as the human species. And I experienced that. And it realized that I was, if you will, at one with it, like an observer, but also as the participant as well. All history was within me. Was there a life review? Not mine personally. Not yours. Um, in the sense that I didn't get the, the, you know, all the things I did. I didn't go through that one. I got all the things humanity has done. All the creations, all the art, all the music, all the wars, all the violence, all the goodness... All of it sort of like was sort of painted out in front of me or exploded out in front of me. Wow, that must sort have been... of like the ultimate philosophical, historical, theological lesson all within a millisecond. Oh, my. That reminds me, as you're telling me this, of uh, the, um, the Star Trek, the motion picture, the, the first one in 79, where Spock gets this download from the Voyager, which they call V'ger. Do you remember that scene? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, is it, is, it, is it anything like that? I think there's similarity in the sense of I was, you know, it, it's in a way like, you know, they say you never forget every, anything, but of course I forget everything. Um, or like like our hard drive has all the memories of everything we've ever put into it. It's as if you opened up the hard drive and everything spilled out at once, and you got everything that was, all, you know, all every image, every word, all just at the same time came out. You know, I just realized as I'm saying something, there's a story about Revelation, um, and the story is actually about the revelation of what is called the Torah, the the Old Testament to the Jewish people. And the story is that when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, where this is supposed to have happened, that the entire Torah, all five, you know, sections of all the 600,000 words, they all got it in a millisecond. Mm. Not in sequence like we get life, not linearly, but like as an explosion. And that was a similar experience here as an explosion. Now, I do want to say that when, and I was not, I didn't have the the issue of someone saying, as some people do in uh, near-death experiences, where someone says, it's not time for you to be here. As I was after this explosion entering the star field, it was almost as if you took a, a motion picture and made it go in reverse. Yes. And, and it rushed down at incredible speed, sort of taking me from star field past the planets, back into the Earth, back into you know where the U.S. is, back into the mountains of Malibu, back into this body that I saw on the ground. And I came sort of rushing in and started to slow down as I entered back in this body. That body was me. And then I started in that body to begin to hear a little bit, to begin to see a little bit, to begin to to sense a movement. 
And I kind of moved around like a little baby. I couldn't get all fours. I couldn't sort of get any. You know, were you so, angry that you were back? No, I was in absolute ecstasy. Oh, ecstasy. Interesting. None, and this is what I want to say was that when I sort of gained back the sort of physicality and consciousness of the particular you know, being that I'm in right now, this Jeremy, um, I looked around, there were still people there. And I felt so much love for everything and everybody, okay. and so much delight. Jeremy, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll uh, pick up on that point and uh, talk about your days directing Columbo, the Roswell movie, and much more. Jeremy Kagan, the new movie is shot. Due out in theaters later in September. We'll give you more details. The Conspiracy Show comes back right after this. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with uh, Jeremy Kagan, American film director, screenwriter, producer. The new movie is Shot, and that star- stars uh, Noah Wiley. Again, give, me a- give us the details when it opens, uh, Jeremy. It opens in New York City and in Los Angeles on September 22nd, and it will be opening in about five or six theaters, cities um, uh, in the following weeks. So that will include Detroit and Philadelphia and Chicago and Washington, D.C. and New Orleans and probably be Portland as well. Um, so it will be a, as a rolling opening, as we say, but it specifically is in theater in New York City and in Los Angeles on September 22nd. All right. I want to take you back to uh, the early days. Here you are, uh, 26 years old, and you're directing people like Peter Falk and, and uh, Robert Culp. Uh, later you would direct an episode of, uh, I guess it was the second season of Columbo, what was that like? I mean, you must must have been kind of intimidating. I mean, Peter Falk at that time, I mean, he was the highest paid man on television. It, it was intimidating. It was my second show. And when I first came out to Los Angeles from New York City, I had not the intention of becoming a Hollywood director. I mean, I admired, obviously, the genius of, of Hollywood and American movies, but I was much more interested in how movies get used for educational purposes. That's just where my brain was at the time. Um, but because of a number of incidents that happened at the American Film Institute where I was, I got you know, an opportunity to, in fact, direct a, an episode of a television show with James Garner. The second one was uh, to direct Columbo. Now, I had been working with crews of about four people. And all of a sudden, I'm walking into crews where there are like 60 people. Um, and, you know, 26 is somewhat young. Not, I mean, let's face it, Dorson Wells at 25, didn't mm-hmm. listen came. But, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm still young compared to a lot of people that are there on the set. But uh, I, I sort of over-prepare, and I think over-preparation for almost anything in life is an appropriate way to uh, approach um, whatever challenges you are and have. And so I was extremely well-prepared in terms of knowing what I thought these particular moments in the scenes needed to be. And 
I've been studying film at, at, at both uh, NYU graduate school and at the American Film Institute, so I kind of knew the, my skills. I was still new at it, but I still knew them. But I remember the case with Peter Falk. Now, about a week before I got this particular opportunity to direct a Columbo, I had gone to a uh, with some friends to a, um, um, a uh, this restaurant bar, and I, I'd had a little more to um, imbibe than making normal, and I saw Peter Falk, and I seen recently the John Cassavetes film Husbands. Yes. And I thought Peter Falk was stupendous in this. So I kind of bumbled over to his table. He was eating alone. And I kind of, with a little bit of slur in my voice, gave him some compliments. And I realized I was interrupting and being a little bit probably invasive. And I pulled back. Then a week later, I get this job. <laughs> and I'm thinking... Is he going to remember he's going to see this director? Because he didn't hire me. I was hired by Universal Studios. Is he going to look at that's that kid who was irritating me while I was having my cheeseburger? I'm getting real, real nervous. So I get to meet him, and it turns out that his assistant was best friends with the, my girlfriend at the time. And they'd said spectacular things about me. So Peter was so interested. You've been accepted by the family. Uh-huh. I'd, even, I'd even met Cassavetes because of the, the attached girlfriend at the time, who um, also worked for John. So I sort of like was in, and he didn't remember that evening. <laughs> thank Lord, thank God. Is, okay, was, I'm going to stop you there, Jeremy. I'm going to stop you there because we're going to take a time out. When we come back, uh, yes, this is, um, this is an interesting uh, aspect of the whole Columbo saga because... Uh, uh, as I said, you were dealing with, I believe at the time, the highest paid person in television uh, back in the early 70s. And here you are, 26, um, trying to uh, coax Peter Falk out of his trailer. We'll t- discuss on the other side. Jeremy Kagan, American film director, screenwriter, producer. The new movie is called Shot. More of our conversation on the other side. Stay with us. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with uh, Jeremy Kagan. We're talking about uh, Columbo, and uh, you directed uh, him in, a, in the second season. And uh, this is in the uh, the early 70s. Uh, Am I right? He was the highest-paid performer in television at that time? I, he may very well have been, but I certainly didn't pay much attention to those things. And what happened was, at one time, Peter um, suddenly was not coming out of his trailer. And I thought, well, what's the problem? And I didn't know the problem was he wanted more money for the following episodes and he wasn't going to work unless he actually was going to get these deals. And so, you know, it was just just typical sort of business-related Hollywood stuff. But I'm this kid, not so much a kid, but I'm this young man wanting to really do a good job. Um, And so 
my actor isn't coming out of his, his trailer. <laughs> so I go over and knock, and everybody's like, don't bother him. He's, you know, there's a big deal. It's the studios. And, oh. and I knock on the trailer and said, Peter, is everything okay? And he looks at me and he realizes, I have no idea what it's all about. That all I care about is making as good a little movie as I can. And he suddenly starts to smile. So I'll come out, Jeremy. And so he came out. And of course, we continued to do the work uh, because, you know, I wasn't even in the game that he was playing, which was, you know, the power struggles with the studio. Right. And he thought in enough of you, obviously, or just not enough of you, but just uh, he was being a human being saying, why do, I, why do I need to drag this poor kid through this mess? It's exactly. I think mean, it's, it's precisely that. Um, and what a talent. I mean, just, uh, you know, he's, he's, he was a very, very good uh, graphic artist. And while we were working, he did a, a sketch of me, which he then gave to me, a pencil sketch. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have been able to work with uh, you know people like that in the early part of my career. Um, because, you know, some of these... What's interesting, though, is when you know what it is that you want, and you're clear about ways to get it. Those people who have a lot more experience with you and then you often respect you because they get you're clear about what you want and how you want to get it. And they will then join in in the process. And, you know, I've worked with Sophia Loren and, 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 and Rod Steiger and George C. Scott, and these are giants. Right, um, right. And... Who have far more experience than I did when I was working with them, but all of them, I think, appreciated that my intentions were, uh, I think, worthy, and therefore, okay, I'm going to go along and work together with this person. I want to just a quick aside because you mentioned Rod Steiger, and here's a an actor that could just you know eat the scenery. Uh, how do you, how did you approach? handling an actor like Rod Steiger. I mean, he, to me, he just seemed on screen, and even in interviews I'd seen off screen, so intimidating. Uh, I mean, how do you tell Rod Steiger, maybe that perform, maybe that scene, you were a little over the top, can you tone it down, or how do you do that? Well, it was interesting in Rod's case. Um, I met him, this is a movie called The Chosen, from a very famous book by uh, Haim Potok, a wonderful story about fathers and sons. And... I met Rod because he was associated with the project before I was asked to direct it. And I met him, and, you know, I was a little worried. I was still a relatively new young director. And, you know, I know he'd done things that we uh, just, you know, hats off to great performances like in, in, in On the Waterfront. And, and I also knew that, you know, he had cases where, as you said, there seemed to be way broader than he would have liked. Um, and when we sat down together, he had an opinion about the character. And when I said, I understand what you're saying, but this is where I'm coming from. And when he heard how much I knew about where this character came from, he listened because he realized that I'd thought this through. Because there were some parallels in your, in your, in your own life, were there not? There were to some degree, yes. I mean, in this particular case, um, uh, the character sort of was an amalgam of my own father. Um, um, but there, but but I also had done the research and the homework, 
And there was a wonderful moment when I told him he's playing a, a, a leader of a community, a small area. They're called Hasidim. It's a very uh, ethnically um, uh, separate, uh, very specific kind of group of people um, with the specific uh, you know, rituals, etc. Um, and one of them has to do with the, the way that these particular people pray. And I told him a story, and because he could listen so well, he got it. And it was a story about somebody who was supposed to be incredibly active, but didn't do anything. And then when the young man said, go up and touch him, and the young man that he was saying just went up and touched the guy, he said, he's covered in sweat. He said, yeah, because it's from the inside. Oh. <laughs> and Rod got it and realized his performance needed to come from the inside, not being histrionic on the outside. Right. And as I said... Rod was a great actor because Rod listens. Fascinating. I want to take you back to uh, 1994 and um, the movie Roswell. Kyle MacLachlan, Martin Sheen, Dwight Yoakam, interesting um, casting choice. Uh, Xander Berkeley, who is, of course, also in, in your new movie, Shot, Charles Hallahan. Um, how did you get involved in that project? Were you, uh, were you, a, were you are you a believer in the sort of the unofficial story of what happened at Roswell in 1947? Um, I didn't know anything about it until about a year before we actually made the movie. One of my colleagues from the American Film Institute, Paul Davids, who I think you know, Mm -hmm. um, Paul and I met at a party for one of our teachers, and Paul told me the experience that that he had had and with his children and how he got totally involved in the UFO world. And I don't think I actually even know it, knew at the time what UFO stood for. Interesting, interesting. And when he told me the story, I happened to be uh, at a, uh, in, in business with the head of HBO, and I told him the story. And uh, that began the whole Roswell experience for the two of us. Inevitably, Showtime made it. But what became very, very clear to me at one moment, and this is, this is sort of pre my uh, own near-death experience, it was the clarity of there is not one universe. There are multi-universes. Hmm. And, you know, astrophysicists over the last 15, 20 years have been speaking to this, and mathematics have been proving it, and, you know, obviously string theory has its own relationship to this as well. But what became a shockingly clear idea was that this is not the only sort of space, if you will. And the intersection of these universes is something that is happening all the time. And what became clear to me was that the idea of the physicality of the UFO experience versus the reality of the UFO experience is where you have this kind of strange blend. Because I am convinced there is, if you will, inter-universal communication. How it manifests, whether it manifests absolutely physical or whether that's our brains trying to understand how it manifests, is in fact something up for the discussion. 
Um, there are times, I must admit, when uh, after reading all the stuff that I've read and meeting all the people, that I feel like every now and then some of the people who are in power in our world are actually reptilians. <laughs> <laughs> they really scare, they scare me deeply, and their values seem to be so twisted. But at the same time, you know, that physical evidence, I mean, I believe that Jesse Marcel believed what he saw and touched, and that when he held that piece of the metal or whatever it was, and then he crinkled it and it then sprung back into its same form, I believe that Jesse had that experience. Can anybody else have that experience? Uh, that's, that's a challenge. Could we see it? You know, uh, I, I, that's where I'm undecided, and that's one of the reasons why Roswell is the story, the Rashomon story that we told, because, you know, there's constant um, uh, sort of, um, ways you can look at this. But I think what's most important is for us to understand that we are not alone, not alone in terms of our own little egos and relationship to everybody around us on this planet, and not alone in terms of consciousness itself, which is way beyond this planet. I think it's also a very uh, a human story, too, because of what Jesse Marcel, who was a very honorable man, uh, and who had to suffer the slings and the arrows... Uh, for all of those years, after he finally came out and talked about it, and then before when when he felt he was forced to stand behind this dubious cover story. So uh, it's really heartrending when you think about all that he went through, and then even his son. Um, in fact, uh, you know, we we, we we spoke with his son. Of course, we spoke with those people who, you know, tell various aspects of this story. Um, and yes, I think it was extremely uh, difficult and challenging because, you know, you everybody's looking at you as a fool. And you're being called a fool 24 hours after the United States government has said we discovered, uh, you know, the remains of a of the UFO and, the, oh, no, not true. And uh, embarrassing him uh, publicly and internationally, what a tough space to live in. Um, but uh, I mean, I admire the fact that he had the courage to say, "Look, I'm not going to continue to tell a lie. I am going to be a whistleblower on this." And you know, I'm quite convinced that there are levels of communication that we are not being told about. I don't want to go get too conspiracy about this, but. There's a sense to me that, you know, there's information and then there's more information. Um, and I, I feel that that, that level um, is still being, you know, withheld. But what's phenomenal about our times is it's really difficult these days to keep secrets. So um, you know, I feel that we're going to be sharing more, you know. I, I just about a week ago, I got lost in some driving in the, in the Southwest, and I came upon the very large array. I, I don't know if you've ever been there. It's called the VLA. No, and these I are giant, giant SETI devices. I right. mean, they're you know they're they're, they're monstrous, and yes. they're all in a V formation, and they're there, and they're recording information and pulling it in, and it's ongoing as you and I speak. Isn't that interesting? Of all the places to get lost and you find yourself uh, <laughs> right there by this array of SETI uh, receivers, sa- satellite you receivers. Got it. You got it. Somebody's trying to tell you something, Jeremy. I think so. <laughs> I think I'm constantly being reminded. But, you know, we get we get so involved in our own stuff, you know, in our, 
our kind of you know, daily survival and sort of forget. I remember, I think uh, Ram Dass, this wonderful spiritual teacher, once said, you know, we're all walking around in spaces. Each one of these spaces is our own personality. And every now and then we realize we're in the spaces. Who we really are is not the spaces. And every now and then you look at somebody or talk to somebody and you realize they got it too. They realize they're sort of in their spaces. And you know, so you go like it, he says, are you in there? I'm in here. How did you get in there? And it's like that line you hear from people who really sort of have greater wisdom than I, who often say, we are spiritual beings inside bodies. And the question is, what awakens us to that spiritual being that we truly are? Jeremy, thank you so much for this. I appreciate the, uh, the hour. I've enjoyed it immensely. I thank you for allowing me to share it with you. Jeremy Kagan, shot, and again opens September the 22nd in uh, cities, major cities around the North America, then wider release later. Thanks again, Jeremy. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley for the full hour. Stay with us. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome and a big shout-out to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM, in the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. Of course, a special hello to all of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, uh, those of you catching the podcast on Stitcher Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com, those of you who take The Conspiracy Show with, with you wherever you go on your mobile device, uh, with the, uh, the Zoomer Radio app and The Conspiracy Show app, both free downloads, those of you who... Catch us on the, the YouTube live, live stream and uh, participate in the, uh, the live chat. Just a programming note, however, no live YouTube stream tonight. We'll resume that in a couple of weeks when Albert Vinzel is back and Ryan as well. All right. Wherever and however you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. What a pleasure to have Rosemary Ellen Guiley with us for the full hour. Normally, she joins us once a month for our paranormal news roundup, but we have uh, managed to get her um, in off the road and uh, grabbed her when she's not off doing some investigation. We've got her for the full hour, and um, we are going to delve into, well, black-eyed children. This uh, We'll get an update on We haven't talked about this in a while. Uh, do you know about the black-eyed children, Ian? Have you been? Have you experienced? Have you ever been surrounded in a lonely parking lot by black-eyed children? Well, just as the name implies, these are 
rather strange-looking uh, humans, if we can use that term. We're not sure what they are. And again, the, uh, the most startling characteristic uh, of them is their eyes are just solid black. Uh, there is no white in the eye, and uh, generally they're wearing, you know, hoodies, and uh, they look kind of forlorn, and and uh, sometimes they're rather pasty in complexion, uh, and all of a sudden they just appear, and oftentimes the person finds themselves uh, alone. Uh, they want to come. They want to get in your car. They want to. They want to get close to you. They want to touch you. Uh, sometimes they arrive in your front door at all hours of the day. They want to. Uh, they want to come in. But, as we'll discuss uh, with Rosemary in just a moment, that's the last thing you want to do. So we'll get an update on uh, black-eyed children. And uh, Rosemary has, um, uh, well, she was in Australia earlier this year and I think in England, so she's well-traveled. And uh, she's actually uh, co-authored a brand-new book that has all to do with travel and the paranormal. It's called The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond uh, with Michael Bryan and, uh, of course, Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Rosemary, how are you? Hi, Richard. Well, literally off the road. Mm -hmm. uh, just recently, today, in fact, I was in Michigan in uh, Sault Ste. Marie, right up in that uh, upper uh, peninsula uh, at a, uh, um, the Michigan Paracon 8 conference. It was huge this year, a very intense weekend, and uh, just got home tonight. Well, um, I wanted to... This is a fascinating... Uh, area combining travel with the paranormal, um, and it turns out your your co-author Michael Bryan uh, is sort of a self-described travel psychologist. I'd never heard of such a thing. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, he literally coined the term himself, and um, Michael became interested in uh, how we're affected by travel um, when he was in college, and he studied psychology and. Uh, he thought it would be interesting to be a travel psychologist. So he literally coined the term himself. And he's often quoted in major media uh, all over the world about travel stories, uh, having to do usually with the ins and outs and stresses of travel. Um, nothing paranormal in that regard, but, you know, just how we cope with going to strange lands and cultures and um, dealing with uh, things that we aren't accustomed to at home. But in the course of talking to people about their travel stories, uh, Michael began over the years to collect a lot of supernatural and paranormal stories, and they started coming up spontaneously. And then he started collecting them in earnest. Uh, I met Michael, in fact, years ago uh, in ufology. He was very active in MUFON for a good number of years, and uh, we would run into each other at, at conferences. And um, so, you know, we became friends in, in that way. Um, and then uh, both of us uh, kind of went our separate ways. We stopped going to MUFON events. And it was actually a travel synchronicity that brought us back together again uh, several years ago. I was out in the Pacific Northwest visiting family, and I put up a post on Facebook, and uh, he saw it, and he said, wow, this is weird. Guess what? I live uh, in Bainbridge Island now, which is just uh, right off the, sh the shore of Seattle. Right. So we got together and uh, started talking, and uh, this is the book that resulted from it. Uh, he's got uh, a real treasure chest of strange and unusual things that happen to people 
when they travel, and they're unexpected things. Now, uh, Richard, you know, when I travel, I go looking for the unexpected because you I'm go looking for dating and. <laughs> researching. So I want really weird things to happen. But the average person goes on a business trip or a vacation. They've got other things on their mind. They're not uh, expecting to be haunted, to meet mysterious people who don't seem to be from this planet or have other strange things happen to them, and yet they do. And that's because travel literally opens the door uh, to the unknown. I want to ask you about that, Rosemary, because um is it the case that the people who have paranormal, supernatural experiences while they travel on vacation or wherever they go for whatever reason, are those people that are inclined to have had paranormal experiences before and so they're more open-minded? Or is it, for example, a person who never experiences a paranormal, suddenly they get on a plane and they go to someplace in London, England, let's say, and because London has such a history... Uh, and haunted locations that they're going to experience that. Is it that? Is it one or the other or a little bit of both? It's a little bit of both. Um, we found that um, many of the people who had odd experiences, even though they were une uh, unexpected, they did have prior track records. Um, and then we had uh, other people who were literally dyed-in-the-wool disbelievers, um, and really had to wrestle with how to interpret their experiences. So it's a combination. And, yes, I think that uh, sometimes when we go to a, a place that's renowned for unusual things happening, there is an anticipation that something exciting might happen. But in many cases, uh, people are not necessarily looking for it. They're sort of blindsided by the paranormal. And, of course, the most common thing is uh, a bizarre haunting, ghosts and, and things like that, um, synchronicities, deja vu, uh, time slips and space distortions, meetings with mysterious people uh, who can't be explained, um, downloads, um, having a sudden expansion of consciousness that connects you to something greater that comes from being in a particular place and you get a what's called a download. Um, all kinds of things happen. And so in The Road to Strange, we have a wide variety of stories um, from all over the world that demonstrate different kinds of things that... Um, are sort of add-on, you know, value add-ons to people's travel experiences. Right. The Road to Strange Tales, or Travel Tales, of the Paranormal uh, and Beyond, and it's uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, co-authored uh, with Michael Bryan, the travel psychologist. Uh, I want to uh, start talking about one of the, uh, the chapters in the book uh, has to do with uh, time slips. And... Um, there's a, a particular story in there that I wanted you to just kind of give us a thumbnail sketch of, and it has to do with Stonehenge. Yes. Um, this was a, a woman who went to visit Stonehenge, and it was uh, back before it was completely blocked off to a lot of access. Now you walk around on a path outside the stones, and uh, you, you can still get access to the, um, the interior of the stones with, um, um, under certain conditions with tour groups. 
But when she visited Stonehenge, uh, access was a little easier, and so she was able to touch the stones. And um, many people have talked about the powerful energy field in in Stonehenge, and that the stones seem to have stories to tell. They speak, they communicate, they sing. And um, I've had those experiences myself in Stonehenge. Uh, And um, uh, I would say that this young woman was primed for change because uh, she was uh, not real happy in her job back home. It was exciting to go to England. She didn't want to go home. She really wanted to embark on something new in life. So going to Stonehenge, uh, a sacred place of intense energy, uh, awakened this creativity in her that had been dormant, and um, she uh, she heard sounds from the stones and uh, thought that they were, um, you know, communicating and singing. And she suddenly felt herself able to write songs, so she started uh, writing them down. And uh, this creativity uh, lasted for quite a while. She went some other places in England and uh, got um, uh, more ideas for songs. And so when she went back to America, she got up the courage. She knew she had to do something different, that uh, Stonehenge had awakened uh, an artistic part of her that she knew really needed to be expressed instead of repressed. So she got the courage to quit her job. Uh, changed her career and started uh, composing more chants and songs, which were then recorded and performed. Uh, She was in a a group herself that uh, performed some of these songs. And so the visit to Stonehenge um, enabled her to make a major um, change in her life that was more creative, more satisfying, and also put her in touch with something deeply spiritual. So what do you think happened there? I mean, uh, what, what caused this, this birth of artistic talent? Well, she may very well have tuned into the energy frequency of, of the stones. And um, I have had the privilege of being inside of Stonehenge several times. In fact, I once rented Stonehenge for myself and a friend. You, and it was just, you what? You, I did, you, yes. You rented? I rented Stonehenge. Uh, actually, I did it twice. This was um, back in the day when, uh, after hours, uh, for Richard, you will love this, a mere 10 or 15 pounds, mm-hmm. you could rent Stonehenge for yourself for... Um, two or three hours, you know, from closing until dusk or uh, from dawn until opening. Amazing. Ian is nodding his head. You know about this, Ian? You should rent Stonehenge Mm -hmm. and perform there. Well, I don't think you can do it anymore because um, uh, they, they, British, uh, I think it's British Heritage that um, operates Stonehenge. And um, I think they realized that they were missing a big cash cow here, so they changed it and uh, upped it to several hundred pounds um, and then started limiting um, it to small groups. So I'm not sure what the rules are now. Uh, Tour groups can uh, take small groups inside of Stonehenge after hours. But um, the stones have an energy and a voice to them. And my feeling was that Veronica, which was the the young lady's name, uh, probably had, uh, like I said, she was primed for change. She had uh, latent artistic ability uh, that she hadn't really developed 
that was waiting to come out. And she probably had some latent psychic ability, too, that enabled her to get into this vibe atmosphere in, inside of the stones. And she may have literally tuned into the frequency of the stones, which for some people comes across as song or storytelling. All right, well, we have more stories uh, to come. We'll return on the other side. The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. Co-author Rosemary Allen Guiley is with us. Stay here on The Conspiracy. She'll be right back. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The owners of The System are asleep. Now we can play The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. And we are back with Rosemary Allen Guiley. The book is The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but Rosemary, what number is this? Is, you gotta be, it must be close to 70 books by now. Um, I am close to 70. I haven't tallied them up, I, but I think I'm right around 68 or 69. <laughs> and um, I just had another one come out in the, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, werewolves and Dogman, I think that does bring me up to 69. All right. <laughs> uh, you, you are so prolific. It's, it's really uh, astounding, quite frankly. Um, we were talking about uh, time slips, and uh, this uh, makes up one of the chapters in The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. I mentioned your co-author, Michael Bryan, is, uh, is a, a travel psychologist. He's a, actually a, he's a clinical psychologist, Ph.D. Um, and that's interesting that uh, here we have... You know, someone, a man of letters, uh, um, you know, a scientific discipline, although, you know, it's, it, it's not as cut and dried when you're talking about the mind, obviously, as perhaps, you know, the, the other anatomy. But still, um, it's fascinating to me that, that um, someone like Michael Bryan, a clinical psychologist, would, would be so into this. What do you think? Well, when you consider Michael's personal interests in the paranormal uh, and UFOs, it makes a lot of sense. And Michael is one of these lifelong experiencer persons as well. And he describes it as his inner psychic. He has a, uh, a lot of uh, experiences that are along the lines of synchronicities and also premonitions. And he's put some of his own experiences uh, in the book. I put one of my own in, and um, my husband Joe has one of his uh, in the book as well. So Michael's actually an ideal kind of person uh, to think along these lines and to collect these stories, and also to, uh, to coin the term and uh, sort of a sub-discipline of psychology, uh, travel psychology, because it gets into all of these uh, strange things that affect us in many ways, not just emotionally or psychologically, but psychically as well. Well, uh, I, I did want to talk about another time slip, um, because you mentioned uh, your, your husband Joe and... and if if memory serves you you either i think you met uh at the mothman festival didn't you it's we did yes right. and and there is a time slip uh involving someone uh who attended the the mothman festival uh but he ended up at the wrong event at the wrong time tell me about that 
this was a very strange story that involved a number of us, uh, including my, my husband and I and two of our friends whose name are Ken and Lee. And um, West Virginia, by the way, has a lot of strange places to it. And I have collected other time and space uh, slip stories from uh, around the state as well. But uh, this was an, an annual Mothman uh, event. It goes on every year. It's coming up, in fact, uh, third week in September. This was 2015. And it involved a man. We gave him the na- pseudonym Ron uh, for privacy reasons. But uh, Ron lived in Indiana, and his purpose was to, uh, to actually drive to South Carolina to attend a political rally. Uh, during the presidential campaigning. He was a Republican. He was going to go hear Republican candidates. And he mapped out his route uh, and timed it uh, so that he would get there in time for uh, the things that he wanted to hear. And something just went horribly wrong along the way. And this is what happens to people when they're driving. They're driving along, and all of a sudden, uh, one of the first things they notice is they're they're losing time. Uh, I've had a few cases where people gain time, but usually they lose time, and they can't explain how they've lost time because they haven't uh, detoured, they haven't uh, done excessive stopping, but suddenly their timing is off. And uh, so he keeps driving along, and uh, then he finds himself that somehow he's gotten on the wrong roads, and his GPS quits working. So he doesn't know how to get back on track, and he drives around um, uh, not quite knowing what to do, getting more and more worried, um, not sure where he is, and he thinks, well, maybe I better get a map. So he gets off the the uh, freeway, and he can't even find a place that sells a map, a road map. It takes him quite some time to find one. And then he thinks he gets himself uh, back on course. The, the short of it is that he winds up in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, which is way, way off course from where he was going in South Carolina, and he gets in kind of late at night. Um, now, Joe and I were just arriving at about 9 p.m. Um, on a Friday night before the conference started, and uh, uh, we walked in to check into the, the low hotel there in town, and he was in front of us. And um, he turned around and uh, said to me, oh, you must be uh, one of the Sentinels, uh, because um, the woman at the desk had said I was one of the presenters. He said, oh, you must be one of the Sentinels. I didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, He seemed to think that he was in South Carolina um, at um, another hotel and that he was going to be participating in this political event, even though people kept telling him he was in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. How far, how many miles adrift had he gone? Hundreds. Hundreds. Literally hundreds uh, of miles. And uh, he he wanted to know how, uh, I said, well, that, you know, this is uh, another event, you know, it's... uh, and he he said, well, how how far away is that? I said, oh, well, you're quite off course. So instead of getting in his car and trying to figure things out, he checks into the hotel, gets up the next day, and starts asking where the political meetings were. Wow. Still, uh, <laughs> he still didn't, he was still in a fog. He was literally in a fog. And uh, so he ran into our two friends, uh, including the one who wrote the story, Ken, 
and uh, asked them about the Sentinel meetings, and they told him, uh, no, you're in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and this is the Mothman Festival. He walked across the street to the Mothman Museum and tried to get into it because he thought that's where the political meetings were, and they told him, no, this is a museum. And he wandered around town all day. Uh, Last seen in the lobby of the hotel on his cell phone talking to someone um, saying that he had now finally figured out how to get to South Carolina, uh, even though the event that he wanted to go to was nearly over. Oh, my. And we never saw him again. Oh, oh. you know, that's a great story. But, you know, it would have been a topper if he said he was going to a Barry Goldwater event. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. It would it would have been wild. Um, now, the... The thing about time and space slips is that that people do get in a fog. They get very confused, and um, sometimes they're. We we were wondering if he was really truly aware of his surroundings. Uh, sometimes fogs come around people, and they literally can't see anything around them, um, or they uh, they see uh, literal changes in the physical environment. For example, this. Um, this highway in West Virginia where truckers have reported time and space slips. Uh, They're driving along, the same thing happens, they lose time, even though they haven't gotten off the road. And um, they can't figure it out. And then suddenly the landscape starts changing. It's not the usual familiar route. And not only is it unfamiliar, Weird things are missing, like uh, guardrails to the highway, center lines, telephone poles. There doesn't seem to be any human activity around, no other vehicles, no people, not even any animal life. And um, uh, one story that I got from a trucker was uh, it took him uh, six hours to do a three-hour trip, and uh, he got worried because uh, he kept passing road signs for um, real towns, but nobody was in them. No buildings, no people, no vehicles, no nothing. Oh, wow. And then suddenly he finds himself back on the familiar route again. And he found out from other truckers that uh, similar things had happened to them. So we wondered if this Ron fellow had fallen into one of these fogs where he was literally seeing things and experiencing things differently than the rest of us around him. Right. I mean, often I associate, uh, and many people associate, lost time with a potential alien abduction, but it, they they actually are aware uh, of still being in the car driving. They're just, there's, things don't, things aren't as they should be. That's right. Exactly. Mm. And things are familiar, but yet they're not. Like a dream like a dream, or uh, maybe they have a bleed-through to some sort of parallel reality Hmm. uh, where things have just sort of shifted slightly off. Now, uh, you know, we have to wonder if uh, people get into some of these uh, um, spatial distortions and time distortions, do some of them not come back? True enough, true enough. Well, there's a a lot of missing people uh, that just vanished for no... No explainable reason. Uh, Rosemary, you mentioned that, that um, you wrote one of these uh, stories, and yours has to do with uh, Gettysburg, which, of course, is just, I'm guessing, just crawling with, with spirit activity. Uh, but these are children, right? 
Yes, it's the ghost kids of Gettysburg, and you're absolutely right. Gettysburg uh, is chock-a-block with residual hauntings uh, from the Civil War battle uh, that took place there in 1863. Uh, All of the town was affected, all of the farms and countryside. uh, Many uh, uh, homes are haunted in Gettysburg. Uh, I would say just about every uh, building in Gettysburg has something rattling around in it. And uh, this was a a trip that I took there around 2004, and uh, I was with a paranormal group, and it was an investigation weekend. Uh, What was remarkable about my experience was I captured the most extraordinary ghost photograph I have ever taken, and uh, it was uh, an impression of these two children who looked like they might have been Civil War era. I was staying uh, with the group in a haunted bed and breakfast, which had been a farm at the time on the edge of the battlefield called the Balladary Inn. That's what it's called now. And it had served as a hospital. Um, Many soldiers had died there. Uh, There were bloodstains still on the dining room uh, where the operating theater had been set up. And uh, the grounds are haunted. Uh, and the room that I was in, I was in a little carriage house with a, a small group of people. We had um, sounds of furniture scraping all night long. Uh, this is a very common thing that ghosts do. They seem to like to drag heavy things around, but you can never find the heavy things they're dragging around. They just make those sounds. Well, I went and took a lot of photographs uh, on the inside and outside, and I did not see anything Um, as I was taking the photographs, but when I looked at one image of uh, um, the glass, the sliding glass door and window on one side of of my room, there looking out at me were very clear outlines, and the photograph is in the book, uh, of what appears to be a girl or um, a young woman, perhaps, um, and a boy. And you can see their faces. She's wearing a bonnet that looks like it has a ribbon in it. Um, He looks like he has a little jacket on, and uh, one arm is holding something that looks like a box or a case next to him. Uh, I showed this photograph to many experts, including non-paranormal photographic experts, and no one could have an explanation for it as to how these images might have occurred naturally. Uh, There is something about reflective surfaces that encourages the manifestation of spirit faces. And um, this was not a reflection on the glass. The images are quite clear. I'm looking uh, at it now. Indeed, I am looking at it now. And... um really shocking to me it you know, is. I did get a shock it is I had I had to, to look uh, a couple uh, clo- more closely because I couldn't see the girl's face now I see it uh, and the um, she's to the right the, uh, the the young man or the boys to the left I thought he looked more of an like an older person because I, I don't know I maybe I'm not seeing it the same way you are I see a kind of a mustache but I could be wrong um, regardless yeah they, that that is remarkable Uh, All right, we'll take a time out, Rosemary. We'll come back and uh, we'll delve into uh, more stories of the strange. And uh, we'll also talk about uh, black-eyed children. We'll get an update on that as well. The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, her co-author, Michael Bryan. Back with more. Stay with us. Take a look around. 
What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley. We've got her for the full hour and we've been talking about uh, some of the stories in her latest book, The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. Michael Bryan, her co-author. Uh, and um, we can get this through visionaryliving.com. Is that the, the best way? Uh, you can get it through visionaryliving.com. It's also up on Amazon. And it's available as an ebook as well um, on um, Kindle, uh, Barnes & Noble Nook. Uh, Kobo, and it's also available as an audio audiobook on Audible. Ah, all right. Now, uh, you mentioned Joe, your uh, your lovely um, husband, and um, he uh, he wrote a story in here as well. Now, uh, is that the roadside cowboy? Yes, it is. All right. Tell us uh, tell us about Joe's uh, roadside cowboy experience. This took place uh, in Arizona. We were traveling from Sedona to Phoenix and uh, took place in 2015. Uh, interestingly, the same year that uh, we had the weird experience in um, Point Pleasant with the, um, the Ron fellow. Right, right. You kind of wonder if these things go in waves. But uh, we had spent some time in uh, Sedona visiting friends, and that's a highly charged area. Many people have experiences of all kinds there. And uh, the highway that, that uh, runs down uh, to Phoenix has uh, some kind of spooky, strange stretches to it as well, uh, where you sort of feel like you're entering um, unusual areas where um, odd things might happen. And we were commenting this as uh, we were driving uh, down um, uh, in the evening, and uh, uh, I could see also some dark shadows in the in the median between uh, the two lanes um, uh, you know, the opposite lane going the other direction, uh, and ours, um, and um, traffic thinned out. Usually on a Sunday night, there's quite a bit of traffic uh, going uh, from Sedona back to Phoenix, and we found ourselves kind of strangely isolated on the road. And that's also characteristic of a lot of unusual experiences where people find that they're suddenly alone on a lonely stretch of road. And so now this was um, uh, something that Joe saw, and I didn't. And that's also not unusual for one person to see something strange and another person not. But Joe sees this figure standing uh, on the side of the road, which would have been the passenger side. And um, he just looked very out of place. He was dressed in kind of old-fashioned cowboy clothing. And he was standing on the side of this highway um, holding a lantern as though he was waiting for someone. So did, you, did Joe spot him way up in the distance and mention anything, or not until you passed by him? Um, after we passed by him, he said, did you see that guy by the road? And, uh, and I said, no, I hadn't. And, you know, we were going at a pretty good clip. 
so he did not slow down. Um, but he had on on a cow, cowboy outfit, the jeans, the shirt, the boots. He seemed he was very tall and thin, and Joe said he looked old. Um, and uh, he had a, a a very bushy mustache, and he was um, standing very stiffly and rigidly. What was odd about it was Joe said as we drove by, it felt like he made eye contact, as though this guy was waiting for someone, maybe us, um, by the side of the road. Hmm. And um, I hadn't seen this figure at all. Even and, though, even uh, though were you, even though you were looking in the same direction, I mean, if he's got a lantern and it's in the middle of the right. night, it 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 w- it should have caught my eye. Sure. It should have caught my attention, especially after I'd been already noticing that there were uh, black shadows along the side of the road, and uh, there was we couldn't figure out why would there be this figure uh, standing really along a busy highway holding a lantern as though he was waiting for someone and making eye contact with people, not trying to flag people off the road like someone needing help. Uh, and it just seemed to be a big mystery. Right. If it, I mean, if someone was out, outside and they were on the side of the road because they were looking for something or they were wandering from a, a disabled vehicle, they would have a flashlight, not a... Not, not a, a lantern. Not a lantern. Not a coal oil lamp. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And this area in Sedona, there, there are a lot of trickster figures seen in, in Arizona, and, and especially around this area. And uh, so uh, uh, we wondered if that's what we had seen. Um, you know, just some unknown spirit or entity that takes a form, uh, and a lot of them will uh, hang out by roads, uh, along the sides of roads or stand in the middle of the road, run alongside of cars. Uh, they might be uh, half human, half animal. What would you have done, Rosemary? We're heading into a break. What would you have done if he had tried to flag you down? Um, my guess is I think uh, Joe would have slowed down, and uh, maybe that w- I would have um, been able to see him perhaps. Um, we probably would have investigated. That's what separates you from me. <laughs> All right, we'll take a time out, come back. We'll talk black-eyed children. On the other side, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us, visionaryliving.com, the website, The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. Back with more in a moment. My name is Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Poking holes in the darkness. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley and uh, just a reminder... Uh, Her brand new book, co-authored by the travel psychologist Michael Bryan, is called The Road to Strange, Travel Tales of the Paranormal and Beyond. And you can get that at Amazon and also through her website, visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. Let's get an update on on black-eyed children. You and I, I think, did one show quite a while ago, um, and it may be the only time I've ever discussed black-eyed children on this program, but it is fascinating and, I, and from time to time, I read new accounts um, on the Internet. Um, 
what I mean, do you have any any plans for a new investigation of black-eyed children? Have you been recently contacted by an eyewitness? What do you know? What do you hear? Black-eyed kids and also black-eyed adults, that's another version of the phenomenon, um, they are entities that are on my radar, and I do uh, track stories about them and look for shifts in patterns and trends and things like that because it seems that um, phenomena with a capital P, uh, they mutate, and uh, they'll follow certain patterns for a while, and then they mutate into a different form or a different behavior pattern. And black-eyed kids certainly are uh, at the high strangeness end of the spectrum. Now, uh, some people say that, well, this is just a created story like a Slender Man because it seemed that uh, there's a point of origin. Um, I call it just a point of publicity because we really don't know how long uh, these things have been around, and they seem to be related to other kinds of weird phenomena. But in 1998, there was a journalist who uh, published an account where he was in a parking lot uh, where there was a movie theater, and he was approached by two weird-looking teenage boys who had uh, solid black eyes who claimed that they wanted to go see the movie playing in the theater, uh, but they had left their money at home, and they needed a ride back home. Uh, so would, they, would he kindly give them a ride back to their mother's place? And uh, he didn't like the looks of them, uh, of course, and they exuded this kind of evil uh, vibe to them. And uh, so he refused, and they got uh, rather demanding and pounded on the window. And you must let us in, you must let us in. And uh, he, he turned on his ignition and tore out of there. Well, that unleashed uh, a flood of similar stories. And I think that that's why I call it the point of publicity, not not origin, because all it takes is for something to land on people's radar, and they say, "Oh my God, that happened to me too." And so now, since then, we've been getting more and more accounts of black-eyed children, and um, they are reported to have these solid black eyes. Uh, they do approach people. They will come and knock on uh, doors and ask to come in because they need to use the phone or they're lost or they need help. Uh, they need a ride. They will approach people in parking lots. And um, people report uh, being frightened by them, but also they have side effects that if you make prolonged eye contact with them or if they manage to make physical contact with you in some way, you are adversely affected. Uh, your health may suffer. Uh, you may have odd accidents. Uh, uncanny things happen. But usually it's a de deterioration in health. Uh, that's been a very consistent pattern. Um, they've been reported all over the world. And uh, there was even a case last year in England where a woman claimed, a, a Bristol woman claimed that a group of black-eyed people uh, three adults and a teenager um, that she and her boyfriend had encountered on a towpath um, that um, she believed that they affected him in some adverse way, and uh, he tragically died on the same towpath uh, a year later. She said uh, her story was that he had uh, hallucinations of somebody uh, jumping into the gorge along the towpath, and he jumped in uh, trying to save them and um, and killed, and he was killed in the process. Oh, my. So whether or not that's a genuine connection, 
Right. I mean, all of the accounts of black-eyed kids and black-eyed adults I've read uh, are online. Um, To what extent have you investigated this? Have you put, have you sort of been on the ground and and been face-to-face and and talked with eyewitnesses yourself, or how have you researched this? Well, I do have a very unusual case, and it comes from Arizona. Uh, Again, Arizona is a very strange state, but this was a woman who contacted me, and um, she knew I was doing black-eyed kid research, and uh, she had uh, a very unusual story. Uh, She was someone who was naturally psychic and mediumistic. Um, Her daughter was pregnant. And she said that she began getting psychic impressions that something was wrong with the fetus and something was attached to the fetus. And she tried to tune into it. And when she tuned in, she was confronted with a a vision, a clairvoyant vision of this black-eyed kid standing in front of her. And this entity said, uh, announced in a, a very... Uh, arrogant way that it w- it was sucking the soul out of the fetus. Uh, oh, it was taking the life Lord. force out of it, and uh, she became quite alarmed because her daughter was having some um, difficulty with her pregnancy, and she felt that there was something um, desperately wrong with uh, with her um, her baby. So uh, the uh, mother then. Um, felt that, you know, she looked for ways to, how can we get rid of this thing attached to the fetus? And she was able to find a, uh, a healer in Australia who located this, uh, this entity somewhere in the spirit planes using dowsing rods and was able to expel it from the fetus um, using uh, Bible verses and spiritual invocations and calling in high-level spiritual beings. So apparently this entity, this black-eyed, what manifested as the black-eyed girl, was expelled from the fetus, and then it started hanging around outside this woman's house. But it couldn't come in. And this is the weird thing with the black-eyed people, that they can't come in, just like the vampire myth, they mm-hmm. can't come in unless you invite them in. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, that's good to know. So Uh, it it was hanging around her house, looking in windows, and uh, she did get a photograph of it. It's not a very clear photograph. A lot of these things aren't for various reasons. And uh, her daughter was able to to have um, her childbirth, and uh, the baby was ill for a while, but then it recovered and uh, seems to be okay now. But after that, then uh, the woman, the grandmother, uh, started seeing uh, ships in the sky, uh, and it was like they were opening up portals to the earth, and through the portals were coming these hordes of black-eyed people, black-eyed kids, and her feeling about them was that they were half alien, half demonic beings, and uh, they were all of evil purpose. And uh, she, uh, she thinks that um, this is what they want to do. They want to attach to people. Um, they're vampiric. They suck off the life force. Um, and 
that would be uh, an example of what happens to people when they have these uh, adverse health effects after a black-eyed kid encounter. That's a vampiric loss of the life force. Right, right. So what is your sense? Do you, do you think that they are uh, some, some type of alien hybrid? Do you think they're interdimensional, maybe related to uh, shadow, the shadow people? What do, you, what do you think they are? Well, possibly they could be a form taken by jinn, uh, because the jinn are shapeshifters, and uh, they they like to uh, manifest in multiple ways, um, and and they do prey upon the life force of people. They have a very strong connection to men and women in black, uh, who are um, um, usually associated with UFO and ET encounters, but very pale faced. Black eyed kids usually have pale faces. Um, men in black uh, don't always uh, have the black eyes, but they're dressed in black. Um, they have a deleterious effect on people, a wasting away. They they want to come and visit you. Um, and uh, there are women in black as well. And these figures have been documented throughout history, not just modern times. Um, and my feeling is that beings that were described as um, phantom monks or uh, dark ghosts, um, um, ladies in black, you know, uh, uh, those sorts of uh, apparitional kinds of experiences might have been different versions of these in the past. Interesting. I'm wondering, uh, in some cases, we, remember we had that big, um, well, it was all over the news, within the last year where where these uh, people were dressing up as clowns and they were being very menacing to passers-by on the streets and they caused kind of a not an hysteria exactly but the, the news reports were filled with these stories of these kind of uh, evil clowns running all over the place and I'm wondering if there may be some in this may explain some of these instances where people are just i don't know you can go, you can buy contact lenses now right and 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 change the color of your eyes and yeah so they're called uh, sclera contact right. that uh, give you the alien look i'm sure i'm sure that may explain some of these cases not all of them what do you think oh, we certainly have to factor in the possibility of hoaxing and hoaxing does take place but uh, I do see a connection with the phantom clowns as well. And, in fact, in the new issue of Fate magazine, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, I have a major article on phantom uh, killer clowns and that, that wave that we had uh, just last fall with uh, a rash of sightings. And it, these are all part of a dark side of um, entity encounters where there's shape-shifting, there's, there are distorted, disturbing forms, um, and uh, bad things happen to people when they come in contact with them, and they, take, they just take different uh, guises. Uh, and so is it like one entity, like the jinn shape-shifting into all of these things, or are there a variety of entities that prey upon human beings um, by taking forms that they know are going to be uh, disturbing and, and fear-instilling to people as uh, a way of getting that life force energy. So I, I think that all of these are interconnected. And with black-eyed uh, kids, if uh, I had one uh, email my entire career in this uh, you know, conspiracy paranormal arena, one uh, from a woman who was... Um, 
I tried to remember the location. It must have been in the United States because she mentioned being in a Kmart par parking lot, and we no longer have Kmart up here. And uh, again, suddenly uh, scrambling to get into her car, and she was approached by, I'm not sure how many, three, four perhaps, uh, of these black-eyed kids. And uh, they, she described them as being sort of dressed in kind of a, what we used to call the grunge kind of attire, hoodies, and they had kind of, you know, scraggly, long, greasy hair, and, and again, very pale complexion and the black eyes, and uh, just wanted, the, uh, were asking for a ride, and she just had a very awful feeling, obviously. Uh, that's my only in, in encounter. Um, very quickly, what do you do if you're approached in a, in a, a lonely place by these black-eyed kids? Get away as quickly as possible and try not to make eye contact. And definitely do not make uh, physical contact. When people are caught off guard, especially by kids, you know, it's a natural impulse for an adult to want to help a kid in trouble. Uh, so it, as soon as you realize that something is off, you've just got to get away. Absolutely. Rosemary, always a pleasure. Congratulations on The Road to Strange. And uh, we'll talk to you next month. Thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. That's it for us. My thanks uh, to Ian Robertson. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say, you must proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air. 
and The Garden Show.